Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and board view podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, where each week we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. Remember, this is not medical advice. We are doing this for medical education purposes only. This week, we have on a special guest host who we all met last time when he talked about a, a high-pressure situation and a high-pressure eye, but this time he's going to talk about something completely different. Michael Park, welcome back to Eyes for Ears. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. How's life going? It's going well. Going well. Good, good, good. You are the chief resident now at Yale. That's right. So just like last time, we're going to have Michael tell us present the case to us, and then we're going to pause at the appropriate points to think about what we would do next if we were in his shoes when he saw this very interesting and challenging patient. You want to take it away, Michael? That sounds good. Thanks again, Ben. This is a 20-year-old man who presented to the ED with painless progressive vision loss in both eyes over the last week. And he described this vision loss as this gradual blurring and darkening of his vision. He's never had this kind of episode in the past no recent trauma, no preceding floaters, flashes, curtains, or veils, just kind of came out of nowhere. And so when I asked him a little bit more about this vision loss, you know, if anything had happened about a week or so ago, he said that he was diagnosed with the flu by nasal swab um, five days right before the vision loss began. And he said that was basically the only other thing out of the norm. And, you know, five days after the flu, he just started gradually having this vision loss. And no past ocular history. He denied any past medical history. He does have a little bit of anxiety and uh, he's treated for migraines as needed, but no routine medications, no allergies. The rest of the history was unremarkable. And on exam, he had, his visual acuity was 2400 at near with each eye. And his pupils were three to two brisk with no RAPD. His pressures were fine. It was 15 and 14. Confrontational visual fields were severely limited. And he had global depression in both eyes. EOMs were full. Color plates he was unable to do due to poor vision. Hmm. And at this point, Interesting. yeah, I mean, I, I went ahead and dilated him. And I was just kind of very puzzled by this exam so far because his, you know, his vision was 2400. And yet his pupils were both very brisk um, and reactive. And right. you know, interestingly, when I dilated him, his DFE was completely normal. I mean, his disc was 0.2, sharp pink and flat in both eyes. Macula was flat, um, periphery was normal. And the media was completely clear. I mean, I got a really, really good look at the back of his eyes. Yeah. No, something I remember when you were telling us about this case was kind of his affect and also something that may have tipped you off based on what he was kind of doing when you weren't examining him. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, at this point when I, you know, when the functional exam was not quite in line with what I was seeing on my objective exam, that's when I had to kind of be a little creative. You know, I stepped away and I was talking to the nurses and, you know, every once in a while I would look at him and see what he's doing. And I did notice that he was at times just looking at his cell phone. You know, and he was just like kind of looking at it with his head tilted. He seemed to be texting someone. And he also was pretty uh, emotionally labile. I mean, he, he was quite mm -hmm. upset and was a little bit rude to a lot of the um, nursing staff who went over there to see if he needed anything. And it just he just seemed like he was very upset about something. So hmm. was it clear what that was? Not or? exactly. You know, I think the nurses were yeah. just trying to, you know, see if he needed anything. But Anytime anyone would ask him something, he would just shrug it off and get kind of upset at them. 
And so it just seemed, it just seemed like he didn't really want to be examined or bothered. And he was texting with 2400 vision. Yeah. So that was, you know, the very odd thing about this that didn't quite make sense to me. So then, you know, I'm starting to think, okay, maybe his vision's not actually 2400. Maybe it's just um, a limited exam due to cooperation. And so I whip out the OKN drum. And hmm. that's the optokinetic nystagmus drum. Can you remind us what it looks like? Yeah. Since we have no audio, I mean, so no visual cues yeah, so, in this format. You know, as the audience probably knows, it's this giant drum that has these wide bars that alternate in color between white and black. And the idea is that, you know, you're supposed to physically rotate this drum. And if someone is able to see at least, they say about 2,400 or so or better, you should be able to track the lines as they go. And it's almost physically impossible for you not to track the, these lines if you're able to see them. And so when the observer is able to see, um, the patient is actually tracking these, you can actually see that they have a nystagmus that's generated. And that would tip off the mm -hmm. observer that this um, patient is at least able to see the 2400. So I actually, mm -hmm. you know, use the um, OKN app that I have on my phone. Okay. Which is just I gotta say the drum is pretty big. I didn't know if you just carried it around casually in your backpack. Yeah, or something. no, this this so, is at, that makes sense. This was at like two a.m. <laughs> yeah. in the in the morning at the emergency department. Yeah. So I just whipped it out on my handy eye handbook. They have that on their app. Um, so I tried it on each of his eyes, and he was actually able to intermittently track on the OKN drum with mm -hmm. his right eye as well as his left eye. So that was also a little bit, you know unusual, a little bit odd. I was just really trying to get a sense of if his vision was actually 2400 or if it was just yeah. limited due to his cooperation. Yeah, so that's like a little borderline, right? Because if he documents 2400, but this thing is kind of sensitive to 2400, but I hear, hear you're saying that's a little bit peculiar that he seems to track pretty well within the stag mystery. Right, right. And, you know, the, you know, in the context of, you know, him texting when he wasn't being, you know, examined when I was kind of standing far away looking in, those things kind of gave me a little bit of a, a reason to check it in the first place. So, you know, by the time I had even actually seen him, the emergency room doctors had already gotten an imaging for him and they just mm -hmm. got a CT of the head without any IV contrast. And that was unremarkable. So, you yeah. know, at this point, yeah, I, I had done my exam. I did a DFE and based on my, you know, exam, I wasn't completely convinced that his vision was truly 2400 and the rest of the exam was completely normal so right. you know, i kind of talked to him and i said you know the, the exam here you know this there's nothing too concerning that i see on my exam and, and i hear you and i hear that your vision is down but i think we're going to have to you know do some additional imaging at a follow-up appointment because we just don't have some of those equipment here so you know i i advised him to actually you know, follow up with us at the ELI Center with our neuro-ophthalmologist, Dr. Fisayo, um, who saw him actually a few days ago. And, um, you know, a few, few days after you saw him, Oh, right? sorry. I don't know a those. few days yeah. after I saw him. That's right. Right. So, you know, when I was in the emergency room and I saw this patient, my differentials for vision loss in both eyes is that it had to localize to either the bilateral cornea, bilateral lens, bilateral vitreous, bilateral macula, bilateral optic nerve, or optic chiasm and retrochiasmal lesions. Some, something that right. affects the optic tracts, the lateral geniculate nuclei, or the visual cortex. But the other right. thing that I was 
thinking about on my differential was non-physiologic vision loss, especially in the setting of him texting and, and doing things that, you know, may not have been consistent with a true vision of 2400 in each eye. So what is that, Mike? What's non-physiologic vision loss? What does that mean? Yeah, so non-physiologic vision loss is defined as a decrease in the visual acuity and or visual field that cannot be explained by an organic pathology, even after a complete neuroophthalmic examination. And, you know, the common etiology for non-physiologic vision loss is whether it could be someone that's just malingering, who is someone who's intentionally doing this so that they can get some kind of secondary gain, or it could also be just from a conversion disorder where, where someone is, has some subconscious vision loss that they might not even be aware of, but it's caused by some underlying psychological disorder. And, um, mm. you know, some of the risk factors for the conversion disorder type is when you have something like this depression, anxiety, or, or history of panic attacks. And, you know, as you can imagine, this non-physiologic vision loss can really only be made as a diagnosis of exclusion after all the mm-hmm. extensive neuroophthalmic testing and exams are done. I think something that really, you know, especially in the differential that you just mentioned, your pupil exam is, you know, very instructive because not only was there no relative afferent pupillary defect, the pupils, you know, as you say, were very brisk. So to me, that um, excludes the macula, optic nerve, and, you know, everything up to the chiasm. Um, and, and even even the chiasm up to the um, lateral geniculate nuclei should give you somewhat sluggish pupils. So this seems to isolate the only, in your differential, the cornea, lens, and vitreous, which according to your exam was normal, and the visual cortex. But you had this question of non-physiologic vision loss in this patient. Are there ways that you can test for it besides by exclusion? Yeah, so you know, I think there are several different tricks that ophthalmologists can kind of use to get someone who is reportedly seeing 2400 or, or worse um, and, and get them to see somewhat better. And that way you can actually definitively diagnose that this patient's vision is actually not 2400, but in fact, it's something closer to 2030 or 2025. And I think uh, when it comes to visual acuity, something that I was taught is the fogging technique, which is when you have the patient sit behind a four-opter and you actually um, initially fog both of their eyes so that they can't see anything. And, you know, if let's say the patient says that their vision in the right eye is the one that they lost, you can actually go ahead and fog their, you can actually unfog their right eye only. And when you say fogging, you mean like make it a really plus lens or something? Yeah. Yeah, you can basically okay. make it like a plus, put whatever plus power it can possibly go up to. That way they definitely yeah. can't see out of either eye. And then when it's time to check their eye that they say they can't see out of, for example, this patient's right eye, then you would just go ahead and unfog and put it back to Plano in the right eye and mm-hmm. just tell them now you should be able to see something because we put in like a magic lens and then see if they're able to actually read something better than 2400 in that eye that they claim they can't see out of. And if they say, oh yeah, now I can all of a sudden see, then you've basically proved that this patient's right eye is actually seeing better than what they claim they, um, what they, claimed they could see. Neat. Are there any other tricks that you can share with us? Yeah, you know, one of the other tests is the mirror trick, which, um, you know, you basically have a patient who says if they can't, if they say that they can't see out of either of their eyes, that both of their eyes are completely blurry, then you can just go ahead and take a mirror and just 
you know, put it in front of their own face so that they, they're almost forced to look at themselves in the mirror. And, you know, for whatever reason, like the human body, if you see it, if you see yourself on a, on a mirror, you can't actively ignore it. So if you actually move that mirror around, you know, to, to the patient's left and to the patient's right, that patient is going to end up tracking their own features on that on their on their mirror and if they can see that then at least that you can prove objectively that they are seeing something you know, and this this really would yeah. be you know relevant to someone who says that they're no light perception for example in, in both eyes right and then another you know quick trick is the color plates technique uh the color plates is some, something supposed to that's supposed to be only visible to patients who see 2200 or better so if someone says that you know, they can't see even the big E. And yet when you tell them, now we're going to be checking your color vision and, you know, prompt them and make it seem like you're checking something completely different. And if they can start reading off the color plates to you, then you know that they actually do see at least 2200 or better. So those are some of the tricks that I know uh, in terms of visual acuity to see if someone's visual acuity is actually better than what they, what they report it as. Got it, got it. Okay, that's really helpful. So what did you or Dr. Fasire do next? Yeah, so the patient was seen in our neuro-ophthalmology clinic two days later, and his exam at the, at the clinic was essentially identical to what I got at the uh, bedside. His vision remained yeah. at 2400 at distance in each eye, and the neuro-ophthalmologist also checked his pupils. It was 4 to 2 brisk with no RAPD, and his anterior exam was normal, fundus exam was normal, but we also got some ancillary testing. Um, so we did an OCT macula of both eyes, which showed a nice foveal contour. The macula was completely flat and the ISOS junction was preserved. Mm -hmm. um, an OCT RNFL was also ordered, which showed uh, completely full thickness um, in both eyes with no atrophy of the optic nerves, no disc edema. Mean thicknesses were about 92 in each eye. And the last test that was done was visual fields. So a 24-2 Humphrey visual field was done. And it showed, uh, actually, at first glance, it looked like global depression in both eyes. And, um, you know, I, I remember looking carefully at the, uh, the reliability indices to see if he was really even paying attention. And actually, in fact, it was a very reliable test. And um, he actually had, yes, a global generalized depression, but in both the left and right eyes, he had this one area. It was a in the right lower quadrant of his visual field in both eyes that was spared. I'm just this like a little little tiny island um, in the hmm. bottom right quadrant of both eyes that was spared. And it, it was uh, you know like I said, it was a very reliable visual field. Uh, so you know based on this visual field, our neuroophthalmologist recommended an MRI brain in orbits with IV contrast, which actually ended up showing some white matter changes that were involved the optic radiations that uh, the radiologist commented was suspicious for post-infectious demyelination. Uh, okay, so honestly, I remember when you were explaining this patient's you know case to us, I thought you were just going to give us a very nice example of a patient with non-physiologic vision loss, but this MRI shows that there's, you know, something else, uh, obviously something like real and uh, organic going on. So what, what was done next for the patient? Yeah. So 
this was a huge surprise for me because I actually, um, you know, was start was chart stalking this patient, and as soon as the MRI results came back and it showed these, you know, non-specific white matter cha- changes involving the optic radiations, I immediately like got in touch with a neuro ophthalmologist, and neuro ophthalmologist was like, okay, this is this is real, this is real vision loss, and we actually called the patient right away and had him admitted to the hospital. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once he was admitted, we started him on IV steroids and we did a lot of different blood work, checking for all different kinds of things, including, you know, we, we sent for anti-NMO, aquaphorin, um, ACE, syphilis, Lyme. We really just sent all, you know, everything that we can think about. And we also uh, recommended a lumbar puncture and sent, sent mm-hmm. the CSF for, for you know, um, a lot of the similar labs to see if there might be something else going on. And all of that actually came back negative. It was normal. Mm. So he was, he ended up just being admitted for five days and he got uh, high dose IV steroids. And um, at the end of the five days, we ended up uh, transitioning him to oral steroids and he was discharged with a very, very slow taper of oral steroids. Mm-hmm. And of course he was followed up in our clinic and, you know, at the follow-up appointment, his vision had improved from 2400 to 2060 oh, in good. each eye. And, uh, yeah, we repeated a visual fields and it actually just showed that he, he regained a lot of his visual fields. So the only residual defect that he had was a left upper quadrantinopia in both of his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm which was actually consistent with, with the MRI findings. Cause when we repeated the MRI, um, he, he actually had some faint residual enhancement of the right occipital lobe, which would correspond with that left upper quadrantinopia. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, since then he was kind of lost to follow up, but oh. yeah, but yeah, that was, that was uh. a very interesting case. Yeah, very. So, w- what is the ultimate name you gave to the disease? I guess I, you probably said it, but yeah. I wouldn't make sure if it's in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this was not a diagnosis that I think was a slam dunk by any means. We d- ended up calling this in a, in a case of acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, otherwise known as ADEM, Adam. And for those of you who don't know what ADEM is, it's an acute autoimmune demyelinating disease that's due to inflammation of the brain or the spinal cord that usually presents clinically as a new onset multifocal neurologic deficit. In this case, the patient had vision loss. But of course, there's no way to confirm that diagnosis, right? It's not like you can do a biopsy on this patient and the biopsy can just show that this is ADEM. It was more like a diagnosis of exclusion. We knew that his... You mean in comparison to other demyelinating diseases, right? Like we, we know he had a demyelinating disease. You just can't see that it's this compared to other demyelinating diseases. Right, right. Right, got it. Okay. Yeah, and you know, specifically, we thought that this might have had something to do with the flu that he had been diagnosed with yeah. five days prior to yeah, his yeah. presentation. Um, and, you know, I think that we that was just a presumptive cause because of the fact that it was you know, just five days before his vision loss, he was diagnosed with this flu. But whether it was from the flu or something else, we just will never know. But, you know, some of the risk factors for ADEM, um, the, some, sometimes it's known 
that antecedent viral or bacterial infections such as CMV, HB, uh, EBV, HSV, HN, H1N1, HIV, and influenza have all been you know, viruses that, that have been associated with this diagnosis. And yeah. you know, the thought is that a lot of these viruses trigger an autoimmune response within the body because of molecular mimicry. So, you know, a lot of these um, viruses have some antigens that our body recognizes and then develops antibodies against. And then the thought is that those antibodies now start attacking your own body because these antigens happen to look similar to, to some structures that are native to your own body. Right. To clarify for anyone curious, this all was pre-COVID, if I remember, right? This was... Uh, this, was this patient was... Yep, yeah, this was pre-COVID. Definitely not COVID. Yeah, no. yeah. This is definitely, definitely pre-COVID era. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the treatment for EDEM actually is also high-dose IV steroids. So with, mm-hmm. with a prolonged oral steroid course, which this patient got, um, but alternatively, if, if those things don't work, you can give them IVIG or, or do plasma exchange, which kind of makes sense with that um, underlying pathophysiology. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just such an interesting case because you're, I mean, for one, it shows the importance of the pupil exam. Because doing the pupil exam showed this is either a bilateral optic media problem. And just like as a, a total like side note, it doesn't have to be, this doesn't mean cloudy optic media. There's, you know, always a chance it's something like keratoconus, you know, where if you're not really looking for it, um, you might miss it. You know, it doesn't really make sense in this patient. You know, it shouldn't give you 2400 vision so quickly, but it sometimes has moderately decreased vision. And they have clear optic media opacity. I mean, a clear optic media, I always think about keratoconus as something that's, you know, relatively common and, and easy to miss if you're not looking for it. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it also, we knew the differential could have included, you know, a post-geniculate or optic beyond the, um, the lateral geniculate nucleus in the optic pathway. And the, the visual field was obviously very useful in figuring out whether, you know, it could be something given that visual field is homonymous. But you, you know, always have to consider that. You know, I could have easily seen, like before I heard about this case, could have easily seen myself writing this off. You know, I don't know what you think, Michael, but saying like, oh, you know, he's a young guy. He's got these risk factors to, you know, present with non-physiologic vision loss. And then he would have had this very, you know, dangerous thing going on in his brain that could have caused even more vision loss or other neurologic problems. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, part of the reason why I think this was a good case to present to everyone is that, you know, if it's, I think, um, if anyone is seeing a patient like this in the ED at 2 a.m. in the morning, who comes in with, you know, a week of painless progressive vision loss and their vision is 2400, but the entire rest of their eye exam, as far as you can tell, is normal, including the pupils. I mean, the pupils were brisk and reactive without an RAPD. Then I think that, you know, before you write this off as just something being non-physiologic vision loss, the very the big take-home point for me was that no eye exam is complete in the emergency room. And even mm-hmm. if you think and you're convinced, I mean, I, I was pretty convinced that this patient was essentially faking it because, I, I mean, I thought I saw him, you know, texting. And, and I'm pretty sure he was. He must have just been looking through that little island, you know, that he has. Right. He, he was texting. But for me to just say, okay, this guy's faking it, you know, you're going to be fine and then just send him home without a follow-up appointment. I think that had I done that, we potentially could have, you know, missed an opportunity to treat him with steroids and get his vision improved. So, yeah. so I think that that was a big learning 
point for me is, you know, you have to, no exam is, is complete in the emergency room. And all these little tricks that we have that we learn about, you know, the OKN drum, or if they're able to see the color plates, they're at least 2200. That stuff is, it's helpful. It's not sufficient to diagnose someone with, with non-physiologic vision loss. Because, you know, so, so what if someone has actually 2400 vision? I mean, if, if someone actually is able to track on the OKN drum and you've said, that this patient can actually have 2,400 vision, then that's still not good enough, right? I mean, if a vision is actually mm -hmm. supposed to be 2020 and they, they say that they can track on the OK Androme and it's 2,400, that's still not sufficient. So I think while helpful, this is these bedside tests are, are not sufficient to diagnose this. Right. And thinking about your whole differential is required to before you can exclude all other possibilities. Right. You know, um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Case. Yeah, no, thanks. Do you have any other last bit of thoughts or anything? Or no, you know. And one thing that I thought about afterwards was, you know, you know, if I did a more cl a closer pupil exam, perhaps I could have maybe looked for the reactivity of the pupils a little bit more closely. Would he have potentially had sluggish pupils in this case? And I and I discussed this with Dr. Fisayo, and the answer really was was no because. Right. The, the demyelinating, demyelinating lesions were retrogeniculate. So they were, they were behind the lateral geniculate nucleus. And of course, the pupillary reflex just goes you know, to the Wettinger-Westphal nucleus, Edinger-Westphal nucleus, which is right by cranial nerve 3 in the midbrain. And so you know, if you had a retrogeniculate lesions, that would have really no part in the pupillary reflex and, you know, um, this patient did in fact have completely normally reactive pupils and yet they really did have true vision loss. So that was, that was another good learning point for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If um, our, a listener is not uh, as fluent in the visual pathway, just to remind you, you know, things go from the optic nerve to the chiasm to the tract. And then from the tract, it can continue to the lateral genetic nucleus, part of the thalamus, before it merges with the uh, you know, occipital cortex and beyond. Or it can take a, take a detour right before the lateral genetic nucleus to Edinger Westphal's nucleus, where it contributes to the pupillary pathway. So that's why we're talking about the um, the LGN so much, is that that's, where the, that's the stopping point of where pupils will, um, will, will become involved or not in vision loss. It's all about the thalamus. Uh, another reason to really know about this thalamus stopping point is if you have a symmetric pregeniculate problem, so, you know, anywhere from the tract to the chiasm to the optic nerve to even the retina themselves, if it's symmetric affecting both sides equally, you may think, well, they won't have a relative afferent pupillary defect then, so what does it matter to look at the pupils? Well, you, if there was, even if there was a symmetric problem affecting both sides, and you're right, you wouldn't have a relative afferent pupillary defect on the swinging light test, you should still have sluggish pupils bilaterally. So you should be able to see that their uh, pupil reactivity is not as brisk as you may expect it to be. So that's why it's important to understand this pathway and to know that you're not just looking for an REPD, you're also looking for reactivity. Michael, thanks so much for coming on, taking the time, even though you're busy with not only um, all the administrative stuff with being chief and being a busy surgical resident, but also with uh, retina interviews. Uh, so thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Enjoyed being here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, if you like what you heard, then you can follow us on Twitter at eyes 4 ears at the number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast and be able to bring on more guest episodes with people like Michael or, or others, then you can leave a rating review on Twitter, iTunes, or wherever you found our podcast. Thanks for your time. We hope to see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.